Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to the next episode of Miked Up with Chiral. You've got Tim and Brandon this time coming at you. We are going to talk about a couple big topics that are going to affect the way that you practice. The first, how to implement and the results of a no-show policy. Now, this is a big one uh, for those patients who chronically, uh, essentially, you know, use up your resources in your office. I'm going to give you our experience in doing that over the next couple months. And then also we're going to talk about, you know, this is going to be an odd one, a common fracture that you can recognize and treat in your office. That's a big one because we're also gonna cover a common fracture that you can recognize but not be able to treat in your office. These are big things because here's the deal. There are two diagnoses that I now treat on a regular basis that I never thought I could treat. And we're gonna go through at least one of those today. So. Just as a reminder, if you haven't hit the follow button and share this episode with a friend, please do. It will really help us reach more DCs uh, just like yourself and get this message out there. Like I said, today's blog is about a fracture. Now, this is an interesting one because before you just hop off the podcast, I don't treat fractures. Yes, you do. And yes, you will see a demographic of patients. If you have a practice like mine where you see uh, people young and old that have this type of fracture. And this is one of those that was uh, maybe about a week ago when I had a patient come into the office and they came in and I was just unsure of my diagnosis. You've had this before. You've had that patient that comes in, you they match 70% of what that, uh, that diagnosis is supposed to look like and smell like. But there was that little hint of, did I catch everything? And this was a 70-year-old in practice. And unfortunately, I was unsure if they had an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture. So today's episode is how do we recognize those things? How do we treat those things? And possibly just as important as the manual treatment, really diving into the um, uh, the cerebral treatment of that patient and understanding what that condition is and what does that prognosis look like? Wow, that sounds exciting. I can hardly wait to hear. <laughs> you, were, you were concerned about people jumping off the podcast because we're talking about fractures, and I thought there'd be other reasons they'd jump off first, but we can go over those later. Uh, before we dive into those important topics, though, what's happening in practice? And one of those things is that we've been busy. A lot of a lot of practices have been busy. We're coming off the fall right now as we're recording this podcast. This is the time that everybody starts to refocus on their health goals. A lot of times their deductibles are met, so they start to come into your office more often. Um, but I think that that is a lesson for us in two ways. Number one is that when we're busy, I don't know about you, but it, I tend to get a little bit backed up with the things that I have to do in addition to seeing patients, like their charts and reading reports and, and marketing the practice. And so staying focused on those things really makes a difference. That if you can find a way to be efficient with your notes, to make sure they're done, done each day, that there are no charts on your desk, that all the reports have been done, it seems like that karma comes back around and the re world rewards you. And anytime there are things still on the list, it tends to let you fall behind. The second thing about being busy that I've learned through the years 
is that if you put it in your mind, you're probably right that if you if you sense a time like we're getting into the holidays now, if you sense that's going to be a slow time, you're probably right. And in reality, it doesn't have to be that much of a slower time. Yes, there are people who are going to be traveling and dropping out of care because of all sorts of reasons, but there's also a lot of people who are going to be having back pain because they're sitting on the floor wrapping presents, because they have changes in activity, because their diet may not be quite as good, and all sorts of reasons that they're going to be coming coming in. So while there may be seasonal fluctuations, don't put that in your mind. Think of every day as a day that's going to be busy. Think of every day as a day that you need to be caught up with things, and it tends to balance out those highs and lows. Yeah, I see that a lot in practice. Our, our practice is right across the hall from where we are, and, and Dr. B does get backed up a lot. I thought it was dementia, um, but maybe it is just the fall. And if you do get backed up, they have a Metamucil for that. Thank, um, so. thank you. I appreciate that. I, I saw that, and I, I tested on you just before the podcast. So this one should be a little shorter than usual. Um, so uh, I talked a little bit about the uh, no-show policy and how long have you been in practice? I mean, it, me? Not as a joke. How long have you been in practice? Uh, 30 years. 30 years and you've never had a no-show policy? No. <laughs> right? Right. So why? Um, because I was I was somebody who always thought I didn't want to offend a patient. That um, I thought that if you had a no-show policy, it was a punitive measure that you were punishing the patient for doing something that was punitive to your practice. And, and we recently changed that. Why? Um, because the only thing that you and I have to sell is, and, and all of our listeners by you and I, that's what I mean, uh, is our time. That yes, there are sometimes some supplements or some supplies, or some of us have other services, but for the most part, it's our time. And if we don't take good care of our time, our patients won't either. And what we've learned through the no-show policy is that number one, there's very little blowback on that. That patients understand one in, in the same one. We've right? had one. That's yeah, it. Yeah, and they can go somewhere else. That uh, we we love our patients. We want to keep them. But if somebody doesn't appreciate that your time is valuable, maybe that's not the best use of your time because you'll certainly fill that up with other patients who who do feel that that's a a win-win relationship. Yeah, I mean, I was just interested in your, uh, you know, your gut feeling with that question because I've I've been in practice now for what fifteen years and I've been dead set against it. And we implemented it because, in all honesty, we don't have time for you know people not showing up. And I was willing to take that. However, now when I hear from other patients who were unable to come in and see us because our schedule's full, and then now someone's just not showing up, now you're taking that away from a patient who needs it. So uh, so to get into that, uh, we did implement it. We give everybody a warning. Uh, that warning is put into the scheduler. So now we can see that person has been warned about the no-show policy. It's been sent out to our patients. They sign all new patients and re-exam sign that piece of paper. And then uh, we've seen a 26% decrease in no shows and cancellations. Yeah. And if, if you're a subscriber, if you want to check out that policy, just jump in the forums library and look at the no-show or the uh, cancellation policy and you'll see what ours is. You want to modify it for your practice, make sure that you, you're following any regulations and laws in your area, but at least gives you an idea of what we're using and what's worked well for us. And I'm really surprised that there wasn't more blowback and that it had just the reverse effect of, of what I had feared. And it's more, more patients coming in and, and better visits. We do charge $150 to no-show, right? <laughs> no, we keep it we keep it low. Uh, the second piece as far as what's happening in practice, just like Dr. B brought up, uh, is it's, it's, it's fall time. So one of the interesting things about your practice and my practice is that we'll start to get presents and cards and 
cookies and cakes and everything for Christmas, one thing we started to do several years ago was to celebrate Thanksgiving and and truly give thanks to the people that have helped us build our practice. Uh, Some of those people are medical doctors. So what we do is we actually do a handwritten card uh, to each of the medical doctors that refer to us on a regular basis that we uh, have lunch with twice a year that we uh, share patients with. And with that handwritten card, we normally do some kind of uh, gift. The gift isn't necessarily for the doctor. It's usually more for the staff. So the, the card is for the doctor and then the uh, the gift like this year we did bunt cakes we've done apples before we've done pies before something that's a little more festive to kind of stay in the season metamucil <laughs> for the right kind of doctor uh, yeah like i say we'll, we put in some of those cookies or in bunt <laughs> cakes for some of the doctors Uh, Let's get into the condition of the month, though, because I do think this is important. I brought up two diagnoses that I really never treated before. One being osteoporotic vertebral compression fractures. We are going to talk about that today. The second being BPPV. Think about this. There are two diagnoses that are a little more complex, not as mainstream. However, it's never more in your face than BPPV and compression fractures because what happens when someone lays down on their table and they can't lay down because they, they have pain in their back? Because we'll talk about one of the number one tests for compression fracture is supine sign. What happens when someone gets up from your table and they're dizzy? Those are symptoms, concerns, signs, and symptoms that we see on a regular basis that we need to be able to recognize, triage, and if applicable, treat. So here's the deal. You get a 75-year-old who uh, slips and falls. You know, Maybe they fall on one side, their hip and their shoulder are bruised and sore, uh, but that soreness goes away in a couple of days. But what they're left with are the signs and symptoms that could possibly be construed as a compression fracture. We need to understand um, how to recognize this. We need to understand what they can do and what they shouldn't be doing associated with that. And we need to merge and meld these things together and say, you know what, I think we need to be doing some x-rays or we need to be treating these people. So let's talk about the possibility of a vertebral compression fracture first. So Dr. B, let's, let's go through a little bit of the etiology and some fun facts. Yeah, the etiology pretty simple. It's just the load exceeded the capacity, and that load and capacity vary throughout our age as far as what the bone can handle. But it, we know that it's super common that a half a million compression fractures per year, and they're twice as likely to compress a vertebra than you are fracture a hip. And unfortunately, females are a lot more predisposed to this. Most of the time when somebody has a compression fracture, uh, in fact, most of the time the symptom is nothing because they don't know it. It's either a slower process or it was not symptomatic. But in the, the, the chunk of patients that it is symptomatic, which is between a fourth and a third, usually that's gonna be some axial back pain that's aching all the way to stabbing. And that pain can vary from nothing, as we talked about, all the way to disabling. Most of the time it won't be ridiculous though. So we're not going to see that radiating far. It can refer out to the ribs or the hip or a little bit through those locations, but usually doesn't radiate. The other big thing is to where is the location of that pain? And most of those happen near the thoracolumbar junction between T10 and L2. There's also a little vulnerability below that down near L4. And there's vulnerability a little higher than that between T6 and T8. But a compression fracture above T6 is really pathologic until you prove otherwise. It's not a, not a typical area to see an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture because there's a lot of bone cortex and density in those upper thoracic and cervical vertebrae. I want you to go into a little bit more depth on load because unfortunately, 
people that fall, there's an onset. They kind of they can kind of recognize, hey, I did this, and now I have this pain. Uh, when you talk about load, though, does it have to be a fall? Uh, it, I mean, can they injure this without falling at all? Yeah, again, it's just that that load exceeded the capacity. So if it's somebody who's 18 years old, uh, and it's going to take a lot of load, they're going to have to fall off of a roof onto their butt in order to compress a vertebra. But if you're somebody who's 95 years old, it may be a sneeze, it may be a bend, it may be leaning forward to pick up their cat. Any of those things, just a little bit of a load, but the vertebral body is so weak that the capacity is low. So anytime the load exceeds the capacity, and that's something to keep in mind, it doesn't have to be traumatic. It's purely dependent on bone density and capacity. Yeah, that's, I mean, because that's one of the biggest things that we'll hear. Hey, how did this happen? Well, you're old. <laughs> so let's talk about the orthopedic exams. What are the, what's the number one one that you see as far as how you're going to recognize, do I potentially have a compression fracture? Yeah, yeah, it hurts to move and it hurts to touch. Those are the simple ones. We can put fancy names on them, but really it boils down to the, the simplest of, of terms that there's a test called the supine sign which means the patient isn't able to lie supine with, with just one pillow underneath their head. If that patient is just you know writhing in pain, that's fairly sensitive, 81% sensitive, 93% specific for a, a compression fracture. There's also a test that came out a couple of years ago called the back pain inducing test. It's pretty similar. It's a patient sitting on the table, going back into a supine position, lying to us on one side and, and sitting back up. Both of those boil down to the same thing. It hurts to move and lie down. So this patient has a lot of pain when they get in and out of bed. And then the uh, the other thing that we can consider is a heel drop, that if the patient is able to lie supine and they're not uh, obviously writhing in pain, we can have them do a light heel drop and then a little bit heavier heel drop and say, does that cause pain? Because that abrupt axial load certainly is stressing that area that failed. What's interesting about the heel drop test is I use the same thing if I want to diagnose a lumbar spine disc lesion. So if you're standing upright, erect, uh, and you go on your heels, it will actually load the spine for a compression fracture. If you bend forward maybe 20 degrees and then do a heel drop and you have a disc problem, uh, it's, it's going to light that one up also. So kind of the position matters a lot. Uh, when you're going to... <laughs> That the, the two-finger test is always my favorite orthopedic test. Does it hurt here? Um, but really, when you uh, have a suspicion of a vertebral compression fracture, you can just do gently a closed fist percussion uh, to go along the spine uh, to help you localize where the, uh, the compression fracture may be. When you can do this with a fracture present, the sensitivity and specificity uh, hovers near 90%. So this is something we want to do gently. We don't want to go pounding on someone that we think have a compression fracture. But it will uh, provide the location and a little better um, understanding of where the problem is. Now, so I've got a patient who's older. I've got a patient with pain. They have a positive supine sign. Uh, if you have trauma that fits and you have an age that fits, should you image? You know, so when should we be imaging these patients? With trauma and age that are of a certain age and uh, of load, then yes. However, there's something very specific when we look at uh, compression fractures that I want to bring to light, and that is neurologic signs. If these patients just have axial pain, um, they could have a compression fracture. We still should image those patients, but it's not 
as big of a deal unless until they have neurologic signs. If you start to get trauma and at the right age and they have neurologic signs, you know, any kind of ridiculous symptoms, uh, we absolutely 100% want to be imaging them because this is an area of the body where we can have the presence of caudal equina symptoms. Uh, this is not a, a, a situation where we want to, uh, to delay any kind of care. We need to get them in the right care quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And what you and I were talking about uh, just earlier was the importance of really taking a closer look at all these because osteoporotic vertebral compression fractures, we almost think that they become normal, that yes, as you're older, that's that's a potential uh, sequelae of, of losing bone density. But we know that there are some studies that say up to a fourth of vertebral compression fractures have a malignant origin. We know that a lot of bony, a lot of metastases travel to bone from, from other common areas. So this is something that I will typically assume has a bad origin until I prove otherwise. If I have a patient who is a senior and they have back pain and they have the closed fist percussion, they have pain getting down and getting up off the table, I'm going to assume that there may be a compression. In that case, I'll, I'll overreach if I need and take an image of that patient just to be certain that there's not something more threatening going on because I've, I've learned over time that we as chiropractors always want to kind of underutilized tests that don't need to be utilized, that we're, we're hesitant to perform more advanced imaging and more diagnostic workup. We want to be the person that solves things with our hands. And in these cases, if somebody is one of those patients who has a more threatening origin, it'd be better to know that sooner than later. It's always better to explain to the patient that you, you found out that it was better than what you thought it was, as opposed to down the line explaining to that patient that it was more threatening than, than what you thought it was, or worse than that, their primary care doctor or specialist explaining it was worse than what the chiropractor thought it was. So uh, these are patients that I'll always... Um, this is the one category. There's a, there's several wrist pain, a kid with hip pain, but certainly a senior who has back pain that's not obvious in nature. We're going to rule out a compression on that patient. That's a great point. Uh, this is one of those things that unfortunately uh, you don't want to find out later that it's, it's that there's a compression fracture. You've been treating it. One of the interesting things about the younger uh, chiropractors, which includes me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, is they always want to learn how to treat faster. And uh, I think that as long as you can learn to evaluate faster, uh, that's when the, really the patient satisfaction and clinical confidence uh, really comes into play and making sure that you know what you're working with, and this being one of the, the major ones. Now, there is a second situation. Uh, the second situation is, should you image if there is no trauma, but the tests are positive? And I think this is this is this would be an opinion. This would be just my opinion. I would strongly consider it uh, because of that uh, osteoporosis, because of any kind of other bone weakening processes. Let's just sum all those up in there, uh, because a lot of these can happen non traumatically. So don't be afraid to take images. The other part about images, um, or the question that I'll get at least from an image is, well, is that an old compression fracture or is that a new one? And what we know from the research is we don't know. And not that that's big of, that big of a deal because you can have an asymptomatic compression fracture. So we have to treat them all as acute, uh, essentially. Um, when we have patients that have um, any kind of uh, compression fracture, there are some signs that we can see on an image that would indicate it's acute. Uh, if you ask me those signs, I will lie through my teeth or I'll direct you to chiro up and do the, the differential and diagnostic section. 
I don't read my own radiographs, and I know I should, and I was trained at, the, at, a, at an early age. It's just not something I'm good at. Um, so uh, radiographs are needed, but once again, uh, you probably don't want Dr. B or myself reading your, your x-rays for you. We have a DAC bars uh, in our corner. We u- utilize the profession to help do that for us. Uh, this is probably the, the, the hardest part about this, this conversation, though. The hardest part is to look someone in the eye who's in pain and say, you're going to be in pain a little bit longer. And so if we see a compression fracture, we suspect a compression fracture, um, unfortunately, the healing time for those exceeds a normal bone. So a normal bone, you know, four weeks, six weeks uh, for a young, healthy kid. Uh, unfortunately, with this area of the body, even a mild compression fracture can take eight to 12 weeks to heal. Severe cases, several months. So this is something you just want to make your patient aware of what's about to happen. Uh, so unfortunately, that we uh, we can't heal them quickly, um, but we can hopefully um, provide some management tools, which we're going to cover in the next section uh, of this uh, this podcast, and things we can help do to, to keep them out of pain. But before we jump into that, uh, talking about the tools for compression fractures, a quick word from our sponsor. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15 percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. All right, management tools. What are we going to do to manage a fracture? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't even feel right even saying that on, on over there because, you know, realistically, we as, as chiropractors don't manage a lot of fractures. It's not within our scope in a lot of situations. However, this is one that we are able to recognize, we are able to educate on, maybe not necessarily treat, but the treatment for this is a lot of ancillary things that you can provide in your office. So first, let's start off with ADL modification. What kind of things can we do for that, Dr. B? Yeah, just recognizing that most of the time, uh, these compression fractures are stable and they're not going to require a surgeon. They're not going to require a pain management or interventionalist. So our goal is to help the patient recover as quickly as possible to keep them active in that in that time frame, giving them ADL advice to avoid exacerbation, especially um, making sure that we're addressing balance issues, making sure that we're addressing potential fall issues around the house, but also keeping that patient active. We want to keep their blood flowing, so letting them know that bed rest is not good. We want them to maintain a lifestyle that's active and to restore their ADLs as quickly as possible. One thing that we know is that the longer this patient lives with pain, the more likely they are to become deconditioned. And that's probably one of their greatest risks as a senior as being deconditioned, leading to all sorts of secondary issues. So keeping that patient comfortable and keeping them active. And then considering other things like a brace. Yeah, braces are one of the things that I think are uh, tremendous for this situation. I actually don't like lumbar spine braces for 
the other 99 things are used for. However, these patients, just like every other patient, leans away from their pain. And unfortunately, when you lean away from a, comp a compression fracture, that means you're leaning into flexion. And these patients, and there's research to support it, really benefit from a brace that limits flexion. Because that flexion-induced stress puts more stress on a, uh, a joint that's already you know, broken. We really need to make sure that we can uh, to do this in a, in a number of ways. One, we can use a normal lumbar spine brace with a, uh, like a rigid insert, but they actually make a cruciform um, anterior spinal extension or a cash orthosis that will help you limit that flexion. It's kind of a, a crude looking brace, but you can find them online. They're about $150 to $200, so you can find them uh, from multiple you know resellers. But this is something that's going to significantly take away pain and also help that tissue heal uh, and not take that, that months to years to heal. We want to get them into a more neutral posture and um, I think there's a great way to do it. Now, the second piece of that, uh, as far as using a brace, uh, is, is important. Uh, the second piece is to stop using the brace because now someone has a tool, in this case, a brace that takes them out of pain. Well, that's great. However, we don't want them to rely on that for the next year of their life. We want to wean them off the brace as the pain improves. Yeah, those are all the early palliative measures that we might use modalities, we might use creams, we might use braces, we might use all sorts of things just to try to get them to the point that that tissue can heal. That when the patient is in so much pain that they're not able to become active and exercise, that's a problem. We know that the cycle of a compression fracture goes from pain that prevents activity and then we have fatty infiltration into the muscles and then the muscles become deconditioned and so does the patient. So our goal is to say, how do we make them comfortable enough to keep from getting deconditioned? And then once they're comfortable, then we get them into a home exercise program, which we know improves quality of life through decreased pain and improved strength, improved endurance, improved bone density, and even minimizing the risk of future uh, fractures. So we're looking for a strengthening program that targets the spinal extensors to get them back upright again, combined with some aerobic exercise. We need blood to get flowing. We want to keep the fat from building up. We want to keep the tissues from getting deconditioned. And we will also consider some proprioceptive rebalance training, especially if that patient is a little unstable. As proprioception fades, as everybody gets older, that means that that patient is more likely to hit the ground in the future, causing either another compression fracture or something worse, a hip fracture. And one thing that we always hear about is make sure that we're, we're incorporating weight-bearing exercise, and that's good, but there's data to say that resistance training might be just as good or even better. So really getting that patient active in whatever way is comfortable as soon as possible, and then transitioning them into more specific rehab of getting the spinal extensors working, getting them upright and correcting whatever biomechanical deficits are there, like core instability or dysfunctional breathing, to make sure that that patient has a full chance at recovery. You, you brought up fall prevention a lot. And I mean, there's going to be, in all honesty, there's going to be a healthcare profession centered around fall training. I mean, it, it truly is something that costs a lot of healthcare dollars, a lot of suffering from patients. And there are some great ways to prevent people from falling. We just did a blog on it not too many weeks ago. And that's something we want to consider uh, for your patients. Now for the part that everyone has been waiting for the manipulation that you're going to use for vertebral compression fractures. Oh, I am waiting. <laughs> I hope you keep on waiting. Uh, there is no manipulation for a vertebral fracture, at least not the site of injury. So can you adjust above and below regions? 
Yes. However, manipulation in that region of compression fracture is not a great, not a great thing. And what we'll see, even with like the supine sign, a supine sign is positive because it's forcing the thoracic spine into extension, which is forcing extension at that vertebral fracture, which is sometimes even the lumbar spine. So I'm really cautious about manipulating any parts of the spine. That would be pure opinion, uh, something that I, I probably would stay away from. As far as mobilization, gentle stretching, stripping, those are all indicated. Th those muscles are tight, they're splinting. You can go through and you can stretch things out within a pain less range of motion. But if you're inducing any kind of pain, uh, especially on an active fracture, we don't want to do that at all. Now, once that active piece is done, you know, once you're out of that eight week mark, can you go through with gentle mobilization or maybe even flexion distraction uh, within the region? Yes. Um, however, uh, in the acute phase, we, we don't want to do that. In fact, when they're out of that acute phase, we want to get them moving, really working on hip mobility to offload the back, really working on thoracic spine mobility uh, because those tissues have been tight and stiff for so long. Now, um, unfortunately, even with the, the best care, some of these people are not going to go back to normal. Approximately 30% of symptomatic uh, vertebral compression fractures don't respond adequately to uh, conservative measures. So what do we do for those? Glue them. That those are the patients that we send off to the interventional pain management specialist or the orthopedic surgeon, whoever does that in your area. And basically, they're going to do either a vertebroplasty or a balloon kyphoplasty, both of which are pretty similar, uh, both of which are going to inject basically super glue into the vertebra. Uh, one just injecting it straight into the vertebra, that's vertebroplasty. The other one for putting in a balloon, first of all, blowing up the balloon to help restore some space and maybe some shape to the vertebra, and then filling that void with super glue. Um, and those are things that can provide relief for our patient. The research tells us, though, at 12 months, the patient who had superglue versus the patient who had just conservative care is probably going to have about the same level of pain. So we're going to reserve this for our patients who really can't tolerate the discomfort in the interim. They can't be active and they're starting to decondition. They're not getting sleep. They're not functioning. We're looking for something that can help them get out of pain a little quicker. And the one something that we really need to be aware of are radicular symptoms. That if someone's having any kind of neurologic symptoms associated with a vertebral, well, with any kind of symptom or, or diagnosis, but if they're having any radicular symptoms associated with that uh, vertebral compression fracture, that is someone that we need to send to a possible surgeon as compared to a pain interventionalist because that left unchecked can really wreak havoc on multiple systems. Yeah. Determining which patient benefits from, from which care. And can they, can they go conservative or do they need some other intervention? We know that interventions like vertebroplasty can provide some short-term relief uh, and provide stability quicker than the body would. But it also comes with some risks. We know that the cement is a lot stiffer, seven to 10 times stiffer than the adjacent bone. So basically you've taken a series of bones that all had a relatively homogenous stiffness and taken one of them and turned it into a piece of granite because you filled it with super glue. That's going to be a lot stiffer. So next time you load that, that vertebral column with the same load, the ones that are most likely to fail are the ones adjacent to that very stiff segment. So we see these patients are more likely to suffer follow-up compression fractures if they're glued. That's why we're going to try to avoid that unless we really don't have any other choice. So, you know, in the end, you know, conclusion-wise, if you see someone who's of the right age, who has a mid-thoracic spine pain, lower thoracic spine pain, we don't see a lot of these on lower lumbar spine, just like you said, above T6, but really L4, L5 should not have compression fractures either. They're, they're designed to, to bear that kind of load. 
Um, however, those are the people who want to do the supine sign, the BIPT test, uh, we do close fist percussion test. And then if we can start to match those signs and symptoms, patient's age and orthopedic testing, now we can determine who's going to need an x-ray and who's not going to need an x-ray. And, and even for those people with the worst case scenario, which is a compression fracture, there's still a lot of stuff we can do in office to help those people, starting with education uh, and usually doing some kind of bracing and mobilization of structures around it. And the nutritional support of that, getting them some vitamin D and calcium, and both of those are necessary. And one of the challenges that all of our seniors have now is they're all using sunscreens to, to avoid damaging their skin any further than what they did as a teenager. And unfortunately, that slows down the vitamin D production, and that, that combination is crucial for the recovery. So making sure that patient has the ADL advice they need for those types of things as well. So let's dive into a fracture you can't treat. And the reason I bring that up is not to, to, to you know, uh, to bring up something we can't treat, but this is something I see regularly that I've got a patient comes in with a sprained ankle or a trauma to the ankle or foot and they have foot pain or ankle pain and they need to know, or I need to know first, do they have a fracture? And we did a, a blog not too long ago on the Ottawa ankle rules, but a new paper just came out that if you can really understand the Ottawa ankle rules and if you can classify them as needing a fracture or needing an x-ray or not needing an x-ray, if you truly apply these rules, there's less than a 1% chance um, of them having a fracture if they, these are negative. So here's the deal. Someone walks in your office. <laughs> Someone hobbles in your office. I shouldn't have said walked. Um, but uh, can we determine through uh, signs, symptoms, and orthopedic testing if they need um, an x-ray or not? And the answer is yes. So if someone is unable to bear weight, that is strike one. So now it comes down to where is the pain in, um, uh, as far as uh, for ankle or foot, and then based on those two areas, um, what uh, spots are tender. So if someone comes in with ankle pain, is unable to bear weight, all we need to do is to um, uh, put uh, bony pressure on the posterior aspect of the medial malleolus or the lateral malleolus. Any kind of bone tenderness at either of those spots and they have ankle pain, we need to be doing an x-ray. The same goes for the foot. If they have foot pain and unable to bear weight and they have bony tenderness at the fifth metatarsal or at the navicular bone, we need to be doing a foot x-ray. It's really that simple. If they don't have bony tenderness at one of those four spots, uh, then we probably don't need to do an x-ray. In fact, less than a 1% chance of having a fracture. Yeah, un unbelievably sensitive, almost 100%. And employ employing those rules, which it, it was kind of a judgment call before the rules were in place. And so you'd always be cautious and just image it if there was any concern at all. But using these rules reduces the number of uh, unnecessary radi radiographs by 30 to 40%. So that's good for our patients' overall uh, long-term long, long -term health. So um, lastly, Dr. Steele, I know that, that you have a story here about somebody who was really a mentor to you, and we'll share that um, if you could let us, let us know what's going on there. Yeah, you know, this is an unfortunate story, but it really brought something positive um, in, in light of it is that I lost a, a great friend last month, Dr. Mark Maher. Uh, chiropractor in the St. Louis area. And he's really the reason I was introduced to the profession, that I went and visited him when I was uh, an undergrad. And it wasn't uh, what he did. It was the response he got from his patients, that every patient was excited to be there. Every patient was excited to leave. They felt better. Um, he really did leave a legacy in the St. Louis area. Uh, he was also a, 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 a subscriber of Cairo Up. Uh, he, um, I met him at Lake of the Ozarks. His, his, his family and my family are, are, are 
connected in, in other ways. And, uh, I really want to thank him for his professionalism, his friendship, um, and uh, just being that person that you can talk to, uh, both on a personal level, but also professional level, uh, my beginning parts of my, uh, uh, my career. Um, but I really want to bring this up for a different reason, is because I think we need more people like Mark. Um, we need more people to bring um, students and to bring other people in the profession uh, and tell them their, your experience. We need more mentors like him. So if you know people in a chiropractic college or an undergrad looking for you know, their future calling, be a mentor to them. Maybe it's not in chiropractic. Um, however, those are the kind of people that will uh, kind of leave their mark and, and leave their mark. <laughs> Pun intended. Look at you. Um, but uh, forever grateful for his friendship, and uh, I hope you have someone like that in your life, or even better, be that person uh, and find someone that's looking for uh, your experience and your skills, and you can help them in their future endeavors. Well, that's a great story. We wish uh, the best for his family and his his patients in the future. Um, something that Mark would have been proud of is we do have some new stuff in Cairo up. Uh, we have 60 new exercises, uh, treatments, and assessments that are being put into the system this month. The good news is we're going to do a better job at letting you know where they live and what they are. Our new homepage, which you've seen if you've logged in in the last few days, uh, will actually list all of those assets. So when we have new things coming in, it'll help you to see those new things, what they are. Now, I could go through them, but I'm not going to because we have something that is overwhelmingly positive. We're releasing a new survey system. It is our chief complaint survey. So when a patient comes in and you run through the OPPQRST, how long does that currently take? Probably somewhere between 5 and 20 minutes for Gertrude. That thing, uh, that process, is, again, is taking our time, and that's the only thing that we have to share with our patients. It's crucial information, but if we could do it quicker, that'd be even better. Our chief complaint survey now puts that um, work on the patient, that they're going to get a survey that you either text or email to them. They're going to be asked a series of questions, and these are not stock questions. These are intuitive based upon their prior answers. So it's able to direct, it's able to get you the history. If somebody had an auto accident or a work comp injury, or if there were pre-existing conditions, it's really potent. So now when a patient shows up in our office, we pull out the chief complaint survey synopsis that's given to us before, uh, before they ever came in, they completed it, and we're able to cut that consult time down dramatically. We're excited to release that to our subscribers. It's something that's part of something much larger that we're working on, but we thought you'd love to see the first part, so that's available to you, uh, and we hope that you enjoy it. We look for, forward to your feedback. There are so many other features that Dr. Bertelsman did not cover, and that that is the 30,000 you know, look down on it. I mean, it's even going to understand where the patient's pain is and ask the appropriate functional disability uh, questionnaire. Uh, it's going to give you a body picker. It's going to um, help lead you into the diagnosis uh, by the way they answer their questions. So uh, this is something that um, years in the making that is going to lead to something that I truly believe will revolutionize the way that, that you and I practice. And uh, I'm excited for people to try it out. We've already had it in how many beta groups or beta clinics? Um, uh, about 100. Yeah, so um, uh, not that there were bugs, but everything's cleaned up and, and everything's ready to go for your use. Yeah, we hope, hope that you enjoy it. We'll look forward to your feedback. I would encourage you to jump into the uh, surveys functionality and check it out. Send one to yourself. Text it yourself. I think you'll be impressed. I know we are, our patients are, and it's really expedited that first visit. 
So thanks again for uh, listening to the podcast. Once again, and we have gotten a, a lot of feedback, most of it positive, no death threats. So that's been good. Um, but future episodes, if there's something you want to hear, let us know. Uh, I really want to thank each and every one of you for listening to this. Uh, because uh, if you're not following, if you're not listening to it, uh, then we really want to make sure we're putting content together that everybody wants to hear, not stuff that we just want to talk about. And if you want to be the first to know when we release new content, uh, if you hit that follow button, you'll be able to get access to that. Uh, also, you could check out our homepage. And on our homepage, you'll see a resources tab that have all of our blogs, all of our webinars, and all of our podcasts. So you're going to see all the content that we have. And just like anything else, you know, um, information without um, you know utility is useless. So uh, you can take all that yeah, information. That defines you. Pretty much, um, <laughs> you're right. Uh, I, I sometimes I, I think that uh, you, you get so much information and you learn about a new thing in, in a, a clinic or, or in a seminar or maybe in a podcast, but now you need to utilize all that information. And hopefully, you can utilize Chiropt to do that. That's something that is going to be able to be plugged into a clinic uh, and take all this information and deliver to your patients immediately. Once again, thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.